In 2014, a movie came out about music, and I was excited about it because I was a music kid, didn't really play a lot of sports, and I feel like the sports got all the movies, right? I mean, come on, like Hoosiers, Rudy, like the list goes on and on. Can we please have a music movie for once? And a music movie came out, so I was really excited to see this thing. What I didn't realize is that going to this movie about music would trigger me so badly. The movie is called Whiplash. Anybody seen this movie? Yeah, Whiplash is about a tyrannical and legitimately abusive music teacher with his students. And the reason it triggered me is I had a tyrannical music teacher growing up that scared the crap out of me. It was in high school. I, I was a, like a total band kid. I was in marching band, jazz band, drum line, you name it. I was playing music in it. And like the, the, the main teacher for all that stuff, uh, he had a hard edge. I don't know if he went to like Drill Sergeant Academy or something like that. It was kind of like an old school approach to student leadership, I guess. A couple of examples where his tyranny was felt that were really like awkward and painful and uncomfortable. One was in jazz band, a buddy of mine who also played trumpet, who sat next to me, we were both playing trumpet. And uh, this buddy of mine was both on the football team and in the jazz band. Well, I just alluded to the fact that musicians sometimes are a little insecure about the whole sports thing and feel a little competitive with it. And that was really felt one day when this kid, this buddy of mine who had a conflicting commitment between his football schedule and the jazz band schedule, decided to go with the football commitment and not the jazz band commitment. So the next time we were in class together, we all sat there while this tyrannical teacher dressed that guy down in front of all of us for 20 minutes. I mean, he shamed him, he humiliated him, he, he asked like really, really condescending questions like, what, you think you're better than the rest of us? This is in front of everyone, just, just like lit into this guy. And the, the intensity, it's not just the things he said, but the way he said them. He had this way of like, just like weaponizing his whole body and his energy in the room. And it was so intense that me sitting next to this dude, like I could feel the heat coming off the teacher that was aimed at the student. Like it was like bouncing off him and landing on me as well. And I wanted to shrink away from all of the anger that was coming at my fellow student. Another day in class in Jasmine, we were having a hard time keeping tempo. You know, you don't want to like rush ahead and you don't want to fall behind. You want to just kind of like settle into the pocket and stay there, right? Well, we were not finding the pocket very well. And so the teacher has an idea. And so he leaves the classroom for a minute and he comes back with a device. Well, again, this teacher is the jazz band teacher and the marching band director. And so for marching band, we had 400 students in the marching band and we would go out on the parking lot. And the parking lot was the same size as a football field. And we would practice out there, of course, right? So you got 400 students playing very loud marching band instruments spread over the distance of a football field. And out there, we had a tool that we would use to help us keep time. So we had a PA with a speaker that was about as tall as I am, like a big cabinet, wider than me, about as tall as I am, with a metronome plugged into it. He wheels that device into our classroom, sets it up about 10 feet away from us, and plays it at full volume. I, right now, as I'm telling you the story, I can literally feel the physical pain, not just in my ears, but in my whole body with every piercing beat that came out of that metronome. So that was my traumatic experience with this particular band director. And watching Whiplash, I was remembering all those feelings. And the thing that I kept thinking about was the irony that these like, high performance pressure environments, I think these teachers think that that will elicit better performances, but it doesn't, right? That jazz band, we would go to these like, competitions like down at Purdue, we'd go down there and we'd compete with other bands and we'd get judged. And I don't know if you've ever been in an endeavor when you know what you're capable of and then you know when you don't hit it. 
But we, like, we knew what we were capable of. We knew what we sounded like on our best days and on our worst days. And we would always show up at these competitions at our worst. I mean, we would always underperform. And I honestly think a lot of what it was is that we were playing scared the whole time because we didn't want to get dressed down the next day in the classroom. And it's really hard to make beautiful things when you're playing scared, right? Yeah. Now, this isn't just the case in the classroom. This can also be the, the case in like, the way that we approach our lives, that performance pressure often doesn't yield the best performance. I think there's been a lot of performance pressure on us in the last 18 months. I think there's been a, a pretty profound sense of like, failure on us in the last 18 months. I think uh, a lot of us are walking around feeling really quite frustrated with ourselves and the ways that we've shown up or not shown up in the last 18 months. And I think we should talk about that. Not only is it the case in life, but specifically religious spaces can become really performative places. And places where there's a lot of pressure put on you to believe a certain way, to live a certain way, to show up a certain way. And a lot of fear can get leverage to do that as if that could help you make something more beautiful, right? With that as a backdrop, uh, there's this text in the book of Matthew in the gospel that um, has been uh, working on me as I've thought about the last 18 months. And maybe it'll work on you today. This is Jesus speaking. And he starts with, are you tired? I got that far and it's like, yes. <laughs> you know? Worn out? Or what about this burned out on religion? So are you not just exhausted, but is there something specifically about the religious spaces you've inhabited or the messages that you've received or the pressure that you feel or the image of God that you've been given that has burned you out? And then Jesus says in the wake of that, come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me and watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Note, by the way, Jesus isn't just saying, just like give up and, and just rest, but then let me, let me teach you a new way that's not predicated on pressure or performance. Let me teach you a gentle rhythm of grace that you can actually live your life into. He goes on, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Do you feel the energy of that and how different that is from a kind of fear-based, high-performance pressure culture, whether it's in your workplace or your family or your church? You feel how that's just a fundamentally different energy and posture? Others who would go on to reflect on their experience of Christ and what Christ meant to them, people like Paul in the New Testament would say things like, in Christ we have learned that all is gift, that, like, that you, don't, you don't have to earn any of this, that God freely gives God's self, right? And from all of that, uh, we've developed a mantra in this community, and right now we're revisiting the mantras. They're illustrated by the images on the wall over here. And uh, we thought for all of us who've been here for a while, it'd be a good time to refresh these mantras, both so that we can continue to let them work on us and our day-to-day -day lives, but also so that they can continue to hold us accountable as a community. But also knowing that there's a lot of new people who found their way here over the last year, we thought this would be a really good time to like, let you know what the operating system is here at South and City Church. Like, it, we can say we're a Jesus community, but that may not be specific enough because lots of communities call themselves Jesus communities. But what do we mean by that? And what are we learning from Jesus? And like, how are we being shaped by all of that? And the mantra that expresses that today that I want to talk to you about is this one. We say practices, not performances. Practices, not performances. 
Now, the point of a mantra, by the way, right, is it's like a portable prayer that you can take with you everywhere, and you can say it to yourself over and over and over again. And I wonder if, especially in this season, it would be really useful to take practices, not performances, with us, to say to ourselves again and again, practices, not performances. And a couple of the differences that stand out between practices and performances, for example, you might say it with a practice that you have nothing to prove. Like when you walk into practice rather than a performance, like you're not there to prove something, you're there to learn something. Well, those are two different postures and two different energies, right? You have nothing to prove. And whether that's something that you need to hear like in the way that you think about your own life or work, or maybe you need to hear that from this community and how we think about the way that God relates to us and the things that we've seen in Jesus. You have nothing to prove. That God isn't sort of standing aloof at a distance waiting for you to demonstrate something that will finally earn the approval of this God, that will decide that you have finally lived up so now you are worthy of love or grace or acceptance, that that's just not the posture of the God that we meet in Jesus. You have nothing to prove. Or how about uh, this one? Failure isn't fatal. Now in performance, failure is kind of fatal, right? I mean, the point of a performance is to not fail, right? But in practice, failure is not only not fatal, failure can be a, a gift. I mean, for one thing, if you fail in practice, that's probably a good sign that you are getting stretched. Isn't that wonderful? If you never fail in practice, you're just probably repeating the same things over and over again that you've already figured out how to do. And there's nothing interesting or generative or beautiful or growing about that. But if you fail in practice, that might be a sign that you are getting stretched. I remember uh, when I was, like, I, I was a music major for a minute in college. And uh, I was a lot of majors for a minute in college, which might explain the eight years it took me to graduate. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, I remember like my teachers would put new music in front of me. I, I was doing piano lessons in college and it, Rachmaninoff was like my dream. That's the artist that I wanted to be able to play. But Rachmaninoff had hands that were like twice the size of a normal human being's hands. And he wrote that way. And I would get really frustrated with it thinking, I just, I just, I don't have it in me to get there. And I literally couldn't stretch my hands wide enough. And then my teacher at the time, who was literally about half my height, this, this very diminutive woman who had hands about half my size, could somehow get all the way there and stretch her hands around what's called a tenth, which is more than an octave on the key bed. That's like 10 white keys that she could get her hand around. And I would, I would fail over and over again and get very frustrated. And I would want to go back to the songs that I already knew how to play because it felt so good to play the songs I already knew how to play. I just wanted to, you know, enjoy my time at the piano rather than keep falling down at the piano. But I would remind myself that, like, I, I want the freedom that will come when I know how to play Rachmaninoff, too. I want the joy that will come when I can lay down those big, dark, thick chords that have all this, like, color and richness in them. And every time I fail, as a reminder that I'm actually moving in that direction, right? Failure isn't fatal if you believe practice is not performances, and it applies to your life, and it applies to your faith, and hopefully it applies to this environment right here. And then if you want to know what you do with failure, if it's not fatal, well, here's the one other point that we might make. Get curious. Get curious about the failure. This is uh, something that one of my mentors has taught me over the years. That in approaching the spiritual life in particular, that anytime you reach uh, a failure point or a frustration point where you, you're not showing up the way that you want to, rather than judging yourself, just get curious about it. You know? You, um, you're parenting and you realize that you have a monstrously disproportionate reaction to something small that your kid has done. I'm not sure if this ever happens to the parents in the room, but let's say theoretically that your kid does something small that's not quite great, 
and then you realize the reaction in you is 10x or 50x what it ought to be relative to what just happened, right? Well, you could shame yourself and beat yourself up, but that's not going to really make you any better. What if you just got curious about it? Huh. Apparently, I have some misplaced anger. Interesting. (laughs) I wonder where that's coming from. I wonder what's unresolved in me. I wonder what resentments from other areas of my life are getting channeled into this interaction right here, right? Or, man, I, um, I feel like I'm, I, I'm supposed to engage this spiritual practice. Or maybe even I want to engage this spiritual practice, but every time I get close to it, I back away. Well, you could shame yourself. You could beat yourself up for not performing in that particular way, or you could just get curious about it. Like, huh, I wonder where that resistance is coming from. Maybe there's a fear there. Maybe there's some trauma there. Maybe there's some hurt from the past, or maybe there's a message that I picked up somewhere along the way that is running a script in my head, and it's sort of subconscious, so I haven't even named it or or audibly sort of heard it, but it's there. And this frustration, this failure point, is is a diagnostic moment to get curious about that and see what's going on. I mean, when it comes to performances, like, there's not much to get curious about because you've failed and the world's going to move on to somebody else who can perform better. (laughs) But if it's practice, if it's all practice, if it's all stretching and growing and failing and trying again, then every one of those failure points is an opportunity to get curious about where the resistance is coming from and and what it can teach us. And I think that that's beautiful. I think a lot of us could use this mantra. We could have used it for the last 18 months, and I'm negligent for taking so long to get back to it. (laughs) Practices, not performances. You bump into a a performance failure and you could just reframe it and tell yourself, we are here to practice together, which means it's not always going to go the way that we want, but what a beautiful opportunity to grow. Uh, You might also want to know more about how practices, not performances, has shaped our approach to church, just in case you're wondering, like, what does that mean for a church community? Well, a lot of things. Um, Again, it starts with this this message that we hear from Jesus in, in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, like, that's actually not the nature of the God that I'm trying to reveal to you. Not a God who stands aloof and distant, waiting for you to earn God's approval, but a God who is close and full of love and grace and forgiveness and renewal. Like that, that's the revelation there. And from that flows all these ideas about the fact that if you have nothing to prove, we can practice together. And so we thought a lot about how our life together as a church family can try to avoid the temptations that make spaces like this really performative, right? So for example, I don't know if you've noticed this, but you're sitting in the round. <laughs> One of the reasons we do that is we ask ourselves, like, what, what is it, when you walk into a traditional, like a venue, right? And there's a big stage up front, and then there's the seats that all face the stage. That says a lot of things subliminally, whether you like notice it or not, right? It suggests that all of you are here to pay attention to what's happening up here, right? And then if you go a little further in that direction and you lower the lights over the crowd, and you brighten the lights on the stage so that we can't see you, but you can really see me? Well, what does that imply? It kind of suggests that there's no action out here. Nothing's going on over here. That's, you, you are fundamentally uninteresting in this process, right? Everything that matters is up here. Well, that might be great for a rock concert, but I'm not sure that that creates a practicing community where every human being in the room feels like you're part of the action. I mean, your life. Your life, your body, your story, the places you inhabit every day, like we actually believe that those are the places where God is at work and ready to meet you and work with you and grow you up and show grace to you. 
And so we ask, could this be a room where that somehow gets manifested? Which is why when you come in, you're actually like looking across at your sisters and brothers. I mean, they're the feature, right? By the way, have you noticed how hard it is to get up and go to the bathroom in this room? <laughs> right? Like if you're sitting over here, super awkward, right? Yeah, we know. We didn't mean it to be that way. Like that's not intentional. But it does suggest that when you're in here, you feel the fact that you are a part of the action, right? Like, you are, like, you are the feature, whether you want it to be or not. And we're not trying to call you out or make it uncomfortable for you, but we are trying to say, like, every person in this room is a part of the action, right? We literally designed this stage as low as possible while maintaining a sight line to the back row, like, quite literally. We, like, went inch by inch, and we did measurements, and we did tests in the room before we built the stage to ask, what's the lowest possible stage that's still somewhat functional in allowing the sight lines to work so you're not frustrated with the room, right? You notice that the drum riser is higher? Anybody ever notice this? It's not because we think that the drummer is better than everybody else. It's actually just because our sound designer said, well, I have to have part of the stage that's tall enough for a subwoofer to fit underneath it. And he wanted the whole stage to be tall enough for the subwoofer to fit underneath it. But we didn't want the whole stage this tall because I didn't want four more inches looking down on you. Like quite literally, that's the, the thought and the design here. Um, we did the open floor uh, where we ask you to speak up. Like, what are you learning? What is stretching you? What response do you have? What voice do you want to bring into this gathering? Because we are trying to say again and again, practices. Like, we are all here to practice together. We're all here in the action together. And I also love when the open floor, like, gets slightly weird, to be honest. <laughs> because you can't have a practice environment if you also have a highly controlled environment. And the, the, the more you turn up the dial on control, the less room you have to actually practice and make mistakes and to do that together, right? And so, so we, we have a, a, an environment that's hopefully well curated, but not highly controlled. So that like every human life and all the quirks of human life and all the real experiences that shape real human life are welcome here because it's in those real experiences where we expect God to meet us and for Jesus to grow us and to lead us in the direction of his kingdom. Um, okay, so so far that's kind of the version I usually preach on practices, not performances. That's the, the brief review on what this mantra has meant to us and where it comes from. And then this year we've been asking, is there anything new that we should say about these mantras? Like not just repeating the same things, but like are they gonna keep moving us forward? Are they gonna keep growing us? Have we learned anything about this mantra? Or are there ways that this mantra is holding us accountable in this season that look different? And as I've been thinking about practices, not performances, and thinking about what I know of our, our family here, of this community, it struck me that it might be really useful to make a case and give a framework for one central practice. And the practice I, I want to propose that we take with us into our day-to-day -day lives is um, it's, it's, it might be the central spiritual practice. And it's one that I think not everybody, but many in this community both long for and feel alienated from. If there's, if there's any sort of rub that I, that I kind of discover us running into, it's probably around this particular practice. And the practice I'm talking about is prayer. So let's talk about prayer for a minute before I um, really like make my pitch, make my push, that I think it'd be something really meaningful for a lot of us to pick back up in this season. Now, I know um, prayer can have a lot of baggage for people. Um, maybe prayer was a part of a, a list of things that you did to be like a good person or a good Christian or maybe you've just sort of gotten the impression that the fact that you don't pray as much as apparently the preacher thinks you should pray means that you're like not doing what you're supposed to do, right? Uh, but more than that, I, I, I've 
keep discovering in conversation with members of this community that there are some real inhibitions around prayer that um, make it really hard to go there, even though I keep hearing this longing, um, this thing in the chest of so many of us that I think desires to know that sense of communion with the source of our lives, with the giver of our lives. And so I keep hearing that longing and, and discovering these rubs. Uh, I think for some, what happened was you grew up a little bit. And the modality of prayer that you had been handed didn't hold water anymore. And here's specifically what I mean. Um, we were given this really beautiful, but also perhaps simplistic idea that like, you know, God cares about everything, which I believe God does. Hang with me, let me tell the whole thing. Uh, God cares about every little detail, God does. But then, so it's like, so man, if you're looking for a parking spot at the mall, you pray for that parking spot, right? Or if you're not sure if you're gonna do well enough on that final exam, you pray for that final exam and you ask God to help you do your best on that final exam. Or if you need a small miracle today, you ask for it. And here's what happened. Some of us stepped back from that a minute and we looked around and the, and the thought was, wait a minute, what happens if God does get me the parking spot, but doesn't deliver the Afghan people from the Taliban? What, what do I do with that? It's almost as if God, if God does answer that prayer, now I have a new problem on my hands because I'm trying to figure out what I do with questions of justice and the big world that we are living in. Now that, that modality of prayer that, I, that is, is um, in some ways really beautiful, but in other ways may not work for the world that we see, depending on where you're at in your own sort of maturity or, or growth. There's a stage in life where it's really appropriate and beautiful, I think. There's a developmental stage with kids that's sometimes called normal narcissism. And this is the way I understand the, the way that it's been sort of discovered. So you have kids at a certain age who are kind of, you know, they're young and, and they're just sort of putting together the map on reality in their head, right? And there's a stage in the development of kids where if you have a two-sided ball, picture a two-sided ball, and one side of it is colored red, and the other side is colored green, and sort of a division along the hemisphere of that ball, right? And you show the kid the red side of the ball, and then the green side of the ball, and the red side of the ball, and then the green side of the ball. So you've made it really clear to them that there's two sides to this ball, and that the person who sees the red side of the ball is seeing something different than the person who sees the green side of the ball. After you show this ball to these kids several times, both sides, and then you just show them the red side of the ball and you're sitting on the other side of the ball and you ask the kid, you're seeing the red side of the ball, what color do you think I'm seeing right now? They will predictably say red. Because they're at a developmental stage where their brain has not yet connected the fact that there are other people having other experiences from other perspectives in the world. That's actually developmentally really appropriate at a certain stage, right? Kids have to go through that stage and then grow on from it, but they take it with them and they fold it into emerging layers of maturity and development. That's really appropriate, right? But what happens when the only modality of prayer that you've been given as an adult is one that was really appropriate for a stage that you grew out of a very long time ago? Well, then prayer gets stuck back there, gets left behind back there, right? Now, um, we could talk at length about why I think it's actually ultimately appropriate to bring that stage with you. And growth always means including everything that you've come from and bringing along with you and integrating it and bringing the best. And there's something beautiful and I think even true about praying for those small miracles and those everyday graces that will sustain us and admitting that we are subjective and we live these individual lives and it's beautiful to trust God with those things. But I think the problem is a lot of us haven't been given um, other models of prayer that are deeply 
expressed in the tradition of Christian faith that are all over the pages of Scripture, but we just haven't talked about them much. Um, Instagram seems to think that I'm a certain kind of Christian because of all the stuff in my Discover feed. So, like, I scroll through my Discover feed, and just there's lots of preachers in my Discover feed um, doing, like, reels and stuff like that. And I keep noticing um, they talk a lot about prayer, but it seems to almost always have to do with, like, getting God to do something for you, right? Um, but then comes along this sage, a, a pastor and theologian who died not long ago in old age named Eugene Peterson. And Peterson says this about prayer. Prayers are tools not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. And I don't know if this is all of us in the room, but I think for many of us who perhaps long to pray but have felt kind of alienated from that practice, I wonder if it would help if you allowed yourself to reapproach prayer not as a tool for doing or getting, but simply for being and becoming. For the slow and beautiful work that happens when we find ourselves resting in the presence of God, the source of our lives. Just resting in that presence. In fact, so that's Peterson's um, phrase on this. Let me give you a definition that I've been using for prayer. This is the way I talk to myself about prayer lately. That prayer is a conscious act of presence or surrender to the loving mystery at the center of reality that we call God. That prayer is a conscious act of presence, which is to simply be present with God or surrender to open ourselves up to something bigger than ourselves and recognize we cannot be the kings and queens of the universe, right? Uh, surrender to the loving mystery at the center of reality that we call God. And there's a prayer in the Old Testament that I have turned to a lot in the last few years that has helped me experience prayer, not as a tool for doing and getting, but as a tool for being and becoming. And it's funny, it's, uh, it's one of those prayers that is so uh, widely sort of known and used that I'm almost shy to let you know that this is the prayer I've been working with for a while. Because if you know much about me, you know, like, I, I, I'm like one of those guys that liked Dave Matthews until Dave Matthews got popular, and then I was mad that Dave Matthews got popular, which is really annoying, I know. But uh, it's fun to feel a little bit obscure, right? And the psalm that I'm going to talk about is not obscure at all. The psalm that I'm talking about has been embroidered on pillows, God bless them. It's been, it's been featured in so much tacky Christian bookstore artwork that it makes me want to cry. And yet, the reason I think it's so commonly used is it's such a powerful and beautiful way of praying. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show you the prayer as it shows up in a common translation. I want to suggest it might be a great way for you to come back to prayer, not as a tool for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. Then I'm going to show you my own translation of the prayer. And then I'm going to invite us, if we'd like, to wrap up this gathering with the practice of praying the psalm together. So here's the psalm as you might have commonly heard it. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. Already you can tell this is not about doing and getting, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. 
Uh, the reason this psalm became really important to me is that it was 2018, and we were working as a team on a growing awareness that it was time for us to clarify South and City Church's organizational behavior around including our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. And I frankly had a lot of anxiety around that move. I felt a deep sense of conviction that it was right, but I just didn't know what happens after that sermon. You know? I just don't know what happens. I don't know if we have a church the next week or not. I don't know if I find out that um, people are in places that I didn't think they were or not. I don't know if I become persona non grata in a lot of places where I feel at home and loved. I just didn't know what happens after that sermon. And while I don't think it's my job to be God, that's God's job, I do feel a, a sense of deep responsibility for this community a sense of stewardship, and, and I don't carry that responsibility alone. We have a board and we have a staff team and we carry those things together, but I do feel this deep personal sense of responsibility for this community and to do something that I couldn't really like have any way of knowing like how it would go or what happens next, like it felt really risky to me. And as that anxiety grew, I would go to the woods on Fridays and walk around. Um, there's a, just a park that I go to to be alone and to be in the woods. And the quieter I got, the more this anxiety bubbled up. And I just could feel this need for something to ground myself. And then I found this 23rd Psalm coming to mind, which actually annoyed me, because I like things to be obscure and esoteric, and this Psalm is mainstream, you know what I mean? And yet, it became the greatest gift in that season, and I would ruminate on this Psalm over and over and over again while I walked around the woods for hours. And as I ruminated on it, I found myself sort of um, finding my own language to mirror the psalm. And so I thought, if the language of a psalm that you've heard a million times is hard for you, maybe this language that has worked for me will help you. So let me share with you like the Jason paraphrase, just, just in case it helps you feel more at home inside this prayer, which is a gift for being and becoming. This is the way I found myself praying Psalm 23. The ground of being and giver of our existence is my shepherd. So I shall not lack anything that I need at the deepest level. This giver makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters and restores my soul. I find that God, the source of all that is true and good and beautiful, takes an interest in me, guiding me along a path of truth and goodness and beauty for the sake of love. Even though I walk through a valley where death and loss haunt me, where the threats are existential, I am learning to trust that which is greater than evil because evil is a limited resource and God never runs out of love. For God is with me and for me, gently nudging me toward my identity and purpose, fiercely fending off that which would destroy my soul. The giver is so generous that I find myself feasting on good things, even when the threat of evil or suffering is close at hand, and abundance overtakes me. And while suffering may be close at hand, pursuing me, pursuing us, even more enduring is that pursuit of loving kindness that chases us in every moment, if only we would open our hearts and say yes. And our eternal home is with God, which is the place of greatest belonging we will ever know. Amen. Uh, that's a way of praying that has sustained me in this season, and I don't mean to center that as if to think that the things that sustain me are the things that will sustain you, but 
I just um, thought, if we're going to talk about practices, not performances, let's not just vaguely talk about it. Let's press into a practice. And I don't know if there's any practice more central to following Jesus than the practice of prayer. I mean, you read the Gospels, and he's constantly escaping into lonely places to pray. And it seems that prayer might have been the central practice that sustained Jesus in his own life and work. And if prayer is something that you feel alienated from, I get it. And I want to help you because I, I understand why we feel so alienated from this form of practice or the places that it came from where we learned it. But I also don't know that the soul can flourish without some way of being present and surrendering. And so, um, so if you're looking for a starting point, I propose Psalm 23. I hereby authorize you to come up with your own version of it, just the way I came up with my own version of it. That can actually be a really powerful way of owning a prayer, to take, take a prayer from Scripture, which is a legacy and inheritance that comes from Scripture, which is beautiful in its own right, but then do the work of finding your own language to, to feel at home within this ancient prayer. Uh, there's a North African bishop named Augustine who described the Psalms as a trellis. You know that vines grow up trellises? that the Psalms are like a trellis for the heart to grow up as we pray these prayers. And I don't know about you, but like that's what I long for, like for my heart to grow up in this season. Not so much through doing and getting, uh, but through being and becoming. So that's Practices Not Performances, the, uh, the remix for the year 2021. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? And I thought we would pray uh, the 23rd Psalm together as a way of beginning our benediction. Not the J version, that would be very wordy and long, uh, but the more traditional version from the text. Before we do, quick note, uh, back to jazz band in high school, right? After a couple of years of the tyrant scaring the crap out of us, he handed off the jazz band to one of the younger teachers that was part of the same school. And this younger teacher cared every bit as much about us making wonderful, beautiful music. He just had a very different philosophy about how to get us there. He would reward risk. If in the classroom somebody tried a new improvisation and they just kind of fell off the rails, which can happen when you're trying to improvise, he would celebrate that even more loudly than when the solo was perfect because he knew that it's not just technique and fear that can make you great. You need some heart and some joy and some sense of possibility in the music. And of course, this won't surprise you, once that new teacher took over and some of the fear left the room and the performance pressure diminished, we performed way better at all those contests. We, like, we found ourselves playing at our best, not our worst, when we showed up in those spaces because this was a teacher who knew that practice is where it's at. So um, let's make us this our, our closing prayer today. And maybe some of us will practice with this prayer in the week ahead. All right, let's pray. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So may you know that you have nothing to prove. May you know that failure isn't fatal. 
May you discover a curiosity about the things that you are learning and the ways that you are growing. May you remember practices, not performances, and may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.